talking about potentially being able to share arrangements concerning Jan, I had not mentioned to him, but when she called me, she indicated that that funeral was going to be conducted rather soon. So I doubt that we'll be getting any arrangements because it's in South Alabama, I think Enterprise and Dothan are in that southern part of the state, and it's in that area. But also she indicated that uh, the funeral would be uh, soon, very soon, she thought. So she may be back home perhaps as early as tomorrow or Tuesday. So keep that in mind as far as contacting her. Cards and calls would be certainly uh, appreciated. But she did mention, as we had on the screen, uh, no flowers uh, were asked for. And uh, he had long time been associated with Georgia Christian School. And so they had uh, asked that any donations uh, come there uh, for that work. But Jan was very upset, naturally, and of course, losing Bill not that long ago, and so we certainly do want to uh, remember Jan and do all that we can to comfort her during this time. So please keep that in mind and uh, do all you can and keep her in your prayers, certainly. We're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount as we look tonight at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust at her has, or for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. The Bible refers really to three kinds of adultery. There is the physical act of adultery, Matthew 5.32, we'll see that when we come to those verses in a subsequent study. Also, Matthew 19.9. And then there is the adultery of the heart, if you will, as we have just read here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That mental adultery or that adultery of the heart, not the actual act of adultery, but then spiritual adultery. James 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever makes himself a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so there is spiritual adultery. And the Old Testament refers to the apostasy of God's people at times in that same figure as adultery. And so physical and mental or adultery of the heart or the mind and then that spiritual adultery. And of course this lesson, as we have just read, deals with that mental aspect. It deals with the lustful look and the lustful thought that must be controlled if we are to be pleasing to God. And so as we think about Matthew 5:27 the first verse that we read, we are reminded that the Pharisees were concerned only with physical adultery. 
That was their concern. But the Lord here in Matthew 5, in this context, in the, uh, in the second contrast we see in this sermon, he gets behind the act itself. And he gets to the thought. He gets to the lust that can lead to that actual physical adultery. The commentator Adam Clark said this, quote, Men are very often less inquisitive to know how far the will of God extends that they may please Him in performing it than they are to know how far they may satisfy lust without destroying their bodies and souls utterly by an open violation of His law. In other words, the attitude of many men is, how far can I go before I cross the line? Rather than making sure I stay as far away from the line as possible. This speaks to the all-important matter of attitude. What is the attitude? And so Jesus draws the contrast again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But then in verse 28... He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. No, he has not committed physical adultery as is elsewhere taught in Scripture, but he has nonetheless sinned because of the lust of the eye. Remember John in 1 John 2, do not love the world, verse 15 beginning, nor the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, rather, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. The lust of the eye. Here's the type of looking that leads to forbidden lust. And there are other passages where this same word is used. Romans 6.12, for example, Paul there writes, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. There's that word lust. Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves, as he talks about the former life of sin, as we also conducted ourselves, he said, in the lust of our flesh, the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And by nature doesn't mean you're born in sin, but the word nature indicates by habitual practice, by Habitual practice. And then in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter begs his readers, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so this strong desire constitutes mental adultery or adultery of the heart. It is the lust of the eye that is clearly forbidden in Scripture. And it is the case, certainly, that God has always been concerned not just about what man does, but about what man thinks. In other words, God has always been concerned about man's heart. Remember 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7? As a king was being chosen on that occasion, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. The writer of Proverbs advises us by inspiration, keep your heart with all 
diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23. And a passage we have already studied from this great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Bible provides us with plenty of examples, enough examples of lust for us to see the consequences of lust, for us to see the sin that is involved. Look at Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, particularly at verse 7, we find the words, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, Joseph's master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph. She cast what? She cast longing eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, that's a passage, incidentally, that shows that lust may go both ways. It's not always a man lusting after a woman. It can also be a woman lusting after a man, as was the case with Potiphar's wife. Then you come to David in 2 Samuel 11, and verse 2 says, It happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. We know that woman was Bathsheba. And David, despite being the man after God's own heart, Yielded to the lust which enticed him. You know, that reminds us of the process that James describes. And David went through the process. Listen to James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That is a description of the very process David went through, and he sinned against God, despite being the man after God's own heart. You see, he did not flee temptation. Paul's Inspired advice to the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 was this. Flee, flee. Don't flirt with, but flee. Also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Again, a passage exalting the importance of the pure heart. But here's a question that's pertinent in this matter, and that is, does the woman have any responsibility in this matter. If a man lusts for a woman, does a woman have any responsibility in this matter? And the answer is clearly yes. Bathsheba, from all indications, was bathing where she could be seen. There's no indication from the scripture that David had to work hard to get into a position to where he could observe Bathsheba. No indication there. It seems that it was not a difficult thing for him to be able to observe her. We have to ask the question, should she not have been away from the public eye? Now, granted, he should have turned his eye away when he realized what he was seeing, yes. But what about any responsibility on her part? Well, today, women may contribute to the sin of men in the same way. And there's no doubt that women are contributing to the sin of men in that 
same way. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on verses 27 through 32, says, Those who lead others into temptation to sin by dress or in any other ways, or leave them in it or expose them to it, make themselves guilty of their sin and will be accountable for it. We do need to recognize the biblical responsibility that is placed upon all of us not to cause anyone else to stumble by any of our words or by our actions or by our dress. And of course, we know or should know that there are New Testament passages that enjoin modesty upon women. And this is a time of year when it works out as we're coming to this section of Scripture. It's uh, an appropriate time of year because it's warming up. And when it warms up, clothes start to come off. But First Timothy 2, 9 and 10 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, take three of those words in that text. First of all, the word modest, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word modest there literally is the idea of well-ordered, something that is becoming, something that is appropriate. And then he says, with propriety. And the word propriety indicates reverence, a sense of shame or, or honor, regard for others, respect for others. And so, women here are admonished to adorn themselves in modest, well-ordered, becoming, appropriate apparel, with propriety, that is, with reverence, a sense of shame or honor, respect for others, and then, and moderation. The word moderation indicates sanity. It indicates self-control. Albert Barnes said, It is opposed to all that is frivolous and to all undue excitement of the passions. Therefore, she is to dress in a way that does not excite the passions of the opposite sex. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5, Peter writes, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, and then he goes on, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And then he goes on, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now there's no specific passage in the Scriptures which says, Thou shalt not show thee thigh for that is immodest and will incite lust. You don't find that passage. However, we are to be characterized by the following. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are not to be conformed to this world. We are to be unspotted from this world. We are commanded to be sober and righteous and godly. We're commanded as Christians to be modest and humble, meek and quiet in spirit. 
to be trusting in God. And a godly woman who is seeking to exemplify these qualities we have just mentioned and more that could be mentioned of Christian character will have no question, none whatsoever about what is modest. She will flee from sin, not flirt with it. She will not be found wearing that which is too short, that which is too low, that which is too tight, that which is too revealing. And she will not have to ask the preacher, nor will she have to ask the elders or a Bible teacher how short is too short, etc., etc. She'll take personal responsibility to make sure she's on the side of decency. And in Matthew 5, 28, women's dress or undress is not considered. At the time this was written, a woman's disrobing, as is the fashion, quote, norm, unquote, today, would not have even been considered. It would never have been considered. And this directive in Matthew 5, 28 is to the man. Yes, but the women have the responsibility to refrain from intentionally causing problems for men in this area. And women sometimes say, well, if a man is going to lust after me the way I look in a bathing suit, well, that's his problem. Well, so what if a woman may not look so attractive in a swimsuit or in any other kind of immodest apparel? Whether a woman incites lust or disgust, it's still immodesty. It doesn't matter what you look like or what a woman looks like in immodest apparel. It is still immodest. And besides, that attitude, that attitude that we've just mentioned is improper for a Christian woman to have. That's not a Christian attitude. To say, well, it's his fault. No, it's his fault, yes, but a woman can contribute. And so Christians are to be concerned for the spiritual welfare of others, are we not? And we're not to cause others to stumble. Matthew 18, verse 6, makes that abundantly clear. God doesn't say that nakedness is wrong just because of the response it may produce in the opposite sex. He just says it is wrong, period. It's wrong. And causing others to stumble is another sobering reason not to dress immodestly. There are some Bible principles on modesty. When we go back to the first couple, we see then Genesis 3 and verse 7, that then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then in Verse 21 of that same third chapter of Genesis, we find these words. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. They clothed themselves initially, and then God clothed them properly. Because Adam and Eve had not clothed themselves properly. God had to do the job correctly. Covering up the vital parts was not enough. And God gave them, quote, the word is tunics, which the original language indicates were coverings from shoulder to knee. 
And this perhaps gives a much clearer definition of modesty in God's sight. A clearer definition than many people think can be found in Scripture. Because many times what we hear is the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't address modesty. Oh yes, the Bible does. Time and again it addresses modesty. And this is one very specific addressing of it. And from the time of Genesis 3, no one in one's right mind ever disrobed for public display, unless Bathsheba is the exception, taking a bath, perhaps where she shouldn't have been taking a bath. Unless Bathsheba is the exception, who may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time, no one in one's right mind disrobed like this from public for public display. And look at the terrible consequences of Bathsheba's state of undress and what it led to. Look at scripture references on nakedness, and you'll find it involves shame in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, the Lord commanded in Exodus 20, Verse 26, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Here was a priestly command to those who were going up the steps to the altar and the concern that God had was that their nakedness would be exposed as they ascended the altar and the people could see their nakedness. And so in Exodus 28:42, we have this command. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. And this was underwear. This is not all that they were to wear. This was underwear. This was underwear under the priestly robes from the waist to the thighs so that when they ascended the altar, their nakedness would not be exposed. We cannot say that God has not been concerned about modesty in the Old Testament, but what about in the New? In Luke 8, 26 and following, we have the account of a demon who was possessed, I mean a man who was possessed by a demon, and he was naked, verse 27 of Luke 8 tells us. But you've probably heard it said before that upon being healed, in verse 35 we find him what? Clothed and in his right mind, clothed and in his right mind. In Revelation sixteen fifteen, there's an allusion to nakedness in a spiritual connotation as God through, or as the Lord through John says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. God has been absolutely clear on the fact that the public viewing of nakedness is a shame. And if you notice John 21 and verse 7, after the resurrection of the Lord and when the Lord was on the shore and the disciples, some of them were out fishing, and they realized that this was the Lord, John, who came to that realization first, said this, It is the Lord. He said that to Peter. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. He had removed his outer garment while he was out there in relative privacy, fishing in the relative privacy of his boat, 
But then he reclothed himself before going ashore to meet Jesus. And after he reclothed himself, he did what? He jumped in the water, proving you can swim with some clothes on. You can do it. It's not swimming that is wrong. There's not a thing wrong with swimming. It's what is generally worn in mixed company to engage in that activity. Now, can we dismiss these precedents when attempting to make a, make a, biblical, a biblical definition of modest dress? Can we simply ignore them? Can we say, well, it's always been and always shall be a cultural thing. Whatever is good for this culture, that's what I can do. Whatever is good in the future, I can do that. No, we cannot dismiss biblical guidelines, biblical precedents, when attempting to make a biblical definition of modest dress. And if modesty is partly self-control, as Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it, then I must become more aware of what I am doing of what I am wearing and how others are reacting. I, as a Christian, am, am to be trying to show Christ to the world. And if I display any other priority by virtue of what I wear, by virtue of how I act, then I'm disrespecting the blood of the one who bought me. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so I have an obligation to glorify God in body and in spirit. The late Eldred Stevens, who was tragically killed along with virtually all the faculty of a school of preaching in Texas many years ago, Brother Eldred Stevens, in his book, The Sermon on the Mount, says this, quote, men are so made that they cannot look at a woman's body without having passion aroused. If one is not bothered, he is so young his passions haven't yet arisen, is so old that his passions have subsided, is not a normal male, or is so ignorant he doesn't know what is going on, or is lying. And that's a bold statement, but who could argue with it? Stevens adds that insofar as initial sexual excitement is concerned, the passion of the male is much stronger than the female. However, this is not to say that a woman cannot be guilty of lusting after a man. We've already cited Potiphar's wife and her attraction to Joseph. And so men, men need to adhere to biblical standards of modesty. And all of this modesty hinges on what? All of it hinges on attitude. And if your attitude right now is, and I hope it isn't, this is preacher talk. Here he goes again, as preachers often do, talking about modesty, and this is something that the preacher says, but it really is not what the Bible teaches, or I can ignore it because this is radicalism or this is extremism. No, I never, if I know my heart, present anything from this pulpit that is anything but what I believe with all my heart the Bible teaches. 
And the Bible has a great deal to say about modesty, and it hinges on attitude. And so if a person's attitude is, I don't care what the preacher says, or this is just the preacher's opinion, and this is not biblical, or however one rationalizes it or justifies it, that's what it is. It's rationalization. If indeed women or men persist in conducting themselves in immodest behavior, even after hearing, hopefully, what the Bible clearly teaches on the subject. Oh, I realized there was a time when showing a woman's ankle was considered immodest. And I realized that was an extreme. But how do I know the difference between an extreme and what is biblical? By doing what we've just done and looking at the biblical principles that certainly can be and should be applied to the subject of modesty. And attitude, attitude will make all the difference in the world as to whether or not we comply with those biblical principles. Women should be feminine and men should be masculine without either calling attention to sexuality. Sexuality is to be reserved for the marriage relationship. Women can certainly view a man as being handsome and men can view a woman as attractive. And they can do that without going beyond biblical boundaries and without committing adultery in the heart, as Jesus addresses that subject here. But both men and women must conduct themselves so as to never contribute to sinful sexual thoughts in the other person. That simply just should not be done. Our attitude as Christians should be to flee from, not flirt with, immodest behavior or immodest dress. The world says, partake, but we must abstain. And then Jesus goes on in this great text, in this great sermon, in verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 5, to say, and if your right eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's, that's a powerful statement. And after examining the nature of the sin of adultery, Jesus gets into the practical matter of what to do about it. What should we do about it? The late J.W. McGarvey says on this passage, quote, Of course the Savior does not mean that we should apply this precept literally, since bodily mutilation will not cure sin, which resides in the will and not in the organ of sense or action. And then he goes on to say, A literal exaction of the demands of this precept would turn the church into a hospital. We would blind ourselves by taking care not to look with evil eyes. He said we should blind ourselves by taking care not to look with evil eyes. That's how we blind ourselves. We should maim ourselves, he says, by absolutely refusing to go to forbidden resorts, etc. That's how we pluck it out, by not looking. That's how we cut it off, by not 
going to forbidden places. The phrase causeth thee to stumble in the King James and cause to sin in the New King James is a sobering one. A sobering one indeed. H. Leo Bowles tells us it carries with it the giving of offense or provoking and it also means a snare. It means a stumbling block and the stick and a trap on which the bait is placed and which springs up and shuts the trap at the touch of an animal. That's what's involved here. And what is taught here in these verses is this. Whatever stands in our way and whatever causes us to sin, however precious it is to us, it must be removed. It must be removed. We've got to recognize the awful nature of sin, how serious it is. We've got to abhor it and we've got to put it to death. We looked at this passage this morning, Colossians 3, 5, where Paul wrote, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says put it to death. That's equivalent to what Jesus is saying here. Cut it off. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Not literally cut off your hand, but get rid of anything and everything that stands between you and eternal salvation. And in Romans 13, 14, Paul wrote, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And remember what Paul, an inspired apostle, said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified, as the New King James says, or a castaway, as the King James renders it. Restrain the flesh. That's the message here in the great Sermon on the Mount. Restrain the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. And in this entire context, in verses 27 through 30, which we've studied tonight, Jesus shows that the seat and the power of sin is the heart. That's where it is. The seat and the power of sin is in the heart. Sin is not merely a matter of deeds of the body. Sin is a condition of the heart. Remember, in Mark 7, 21, Jesus said, For from, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. Therefore, may our desire ever be, as the great old hymn expresses it, pure in heart, O God, help me to be. Purer in heart, O God, help me to be. You see, if we have imbibed the beautiful characteristics with which Jesus began this great sermon, remember the Beatitudes? If we imbibe those beautiful characteristics, we are going to have an attitude that will be pleasing to God, and our actions will flow from that proper attitude, and our actions will be reflected in proper dress, proper speech, 
proper everything. What's your attitude tonight toward sin? What's your attitude tonight toward the gospel which frees from sin? If you haven't obeyed it, we plead with you to do that from a heart that is humble and hungry for righteousness. Righteousness that can only come through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess him to be the Christ. Be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done those things but you've wandered and need to come home, come home tonight to your first love from which you've wandered and God will surely forgive and we'll be eager and glad to pray with you and for you for that forgiveness. As we stand to sing, will you come?